นโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังนามังสังฆังนามัสสิ This being the first Sunday of the month of April, that's the uh, occasion for contemplating together the Dhamma teaching on the page of our Forest Sangha calendar. Which this month, teaching by Ajahn Chah, which it's um, a bit longer than usual. So if I can um, praise it, uh, Ajahn Chah says, take every opportunity to put effort into Dhamma practice. Don't be concerned about whether it feels peaceful or not. If you've done the work, then don't worry about results. Uh, if we we read this, and uh, we might think, well, that's all right for somebody like Ajahn Chah to say, "Don't worry about results, and don't be concerned about whether it feels peaceful or not." But the fact is, I am concerned about whether it feels peaceful or not. I don't like confusion, and I would like some results. So what's Ajahn Chah talking about? He says, if you've done the work, don't be worried about results. Mm. Well, I don't think he's talking about if you finish your work. I think he's talking about if we commit to dhamma practice, then it's skillful. It's appropriate to let go of. Mm-hmm. Too much concern about progress and practice. Mm-hmm. If we commit to dhamma practice, we commit to do, paying attention to reality, the reality of this moment. Now, dhamma practice means uh, making an effort to accord with reality. Mm-hmm. Dhamma is reality, truth, actuality. It's not a story. It's not something that the Buddha invented. The Buddha didn't invent the dhamma. Mm-hmm. The Buddha didn't create the Dhamma. The Buddha awoke to the Dhamma. The Buddha saw reality you know, through the skillful effort that he made. The distortions of his consciousness were sufficiently dispelled. So what remained was the clear seeing of the way it is. Actuality. It's like this. And from that perspective, wisdom—the radiance of wisdom and the radiance of compassion. Could function fully, perfectly, normally, as is suitable for human beings. What most of us have to put up with most of the time is something that, from his perspective, is thoroughly unsuitable, which is greed, hatred, and delusion, and all the other disfigurements of consciousness. So, so practicing dhamma, doing the work, means paying attention to reality, making the effort to be with this experience. Not, not telling ourselves stories about what's going on. A lot of the time, that's what we're doing. Uh, if we're honest, and I'm sure all of us are making the effort to be honest, and 
as we progress in practice, we we come across all the storytelling that's going on. You know, repetitive narratives going on in our minds, just on and on. And sometimes not even very interesting stories, pretty boring stories, kind of silly stories, undermining stories, unhelpful stories, but they do go on. And Well, for the Buddha, all the storytelling came to an end. And you might be familiar with when the Buddha was enlightened, he, he said, he said, he called it the house builder. He said, house builder, I have seen you. Your ridge pole is broken, your rafters are gone. No more house building will you do. Yeah, I've seen you, I know what you're up to. Well, he could also have said, storyteller, I've seen you. No more plots will you create, no more characters will you invent. No more stories do I believe. We, on the other hand, we have this, or these, not just this one story, we have many stories going on in our minds over and over, constantly tripping us up, uh, undermining us, and causing confusion. So committing to the work, as Ajahn Chah was suggesting, if we have done the work, there's no need to worry about results. Instead of paying attention to what a new, improved version of me might look like at some imagined time in the future, if we discipline the attention to pay attention to this experience, are we telling ourselves stories or are we being with what is right here now? So, as uh, probably many of you would uh, know, we've just finished our annual winter retreat. Three months, uh, the winter retreat that our monasteries, at least in Europe, observe uh, simplifying, cutting back on various activities and uh, slowing down and getting a little bit more quieter. And part of the function of retreats is so we can be more attentive to the storytelling. If we're really busy, I'm sure all of us have recognized this, we're really busy all the time, busy talking, busy doing things, busy engaging, busy planning, busy regretting, busy recovering. Uh, We're busy all the time we don't pick up on the more some of the more subtle activities and the messages that we could be hearing. You know, the storytelling is not clear. And so those of you that have been on retreat uh, would, uh, I expect, be um, very familiar with uh, how when we slow down, unplug, turn off the phone... Mm-hmm. Turn the attention inwards, shine the light of attention inwards, start to see, start to hear some of the more subtle activity of our hearts and minds. And it's a different level of information. It's very helpful. It may be very embarrassing as well, some of the stupidity of our minds. It is actually thoroughly humiliating, quite frankly, when you start meditating, you realize, my, what a load of nonsense my mind is full of. Yeah. Well, I'm going to stop it. But 
Well, it's not that easy. We can't stop it. Why can't we stop it? Why, why can't I let go of this craziness? That's, a, that's an important question because it, you know, it can be exceedingly frustrating. We've got good aspiration, good intention, making good effort, putting time aside. You know, people will, you know, when, when our lay friends come on retreat here in the monastery, they often take time off work to come here and, and pay attention to the inner world, and give nourishment to the spiritual aspirations, and, and yet it can be a real struggle. A tremendous struggle. And if, for instance, it's a week retreat, those of you that have done week retreats, uh, at least the first three days are, can be a real ordeal. And this is very normal. Say, Why is it like that? You know, I've turned my phone off. I'm not talking to anybody. Uh, not reading any newspapers. Not looking at Huffington Post or BBC News or anything else. Uh, uh, what is this? Why can't I let go of it? Well, it's similar to, if you imagine an ocean liner, you know, turn the engines off and, well, why doesn't the boat stop? Why doesn't the boat stop? Well, we all know there is this thing called momentum. There is momentum. And so it's wise to reflect on that. If we are, if we do have the question, if we do have the issue of why can't I let go, some of the habits, some of the storytelling, some of the insane things I keep telling myself that just don't disappear, why not? Well, it's momentum. If we've been doing it for a long time, it's not going to stop just like that. And so it's helpful to, to reflect on that. And there is something we can do about it. Well, just for instance, the wise reflection. Just to have that bit of information helps. can make a big difference. Yeah. It doesn't accord with nature. If there's momentum fueling our compulsive storytelling, yeah. it's like an addiction. It's not the desire for, for you know, bungee jumping, if that's what you get off on, you know, if you... If you're an adrenaline junkie and you just love bungee jumping, yeah. I've never done it myself, but I can imagine it's a rush. And you know, well, you're not going to stop wanting to do bungee jumping just because you, you know, you realise it's, it's not a very safe thing to be doing, or, uh, or for whatever reason. Uh, chocolate. <laughs> Talking about something, else, yeah. Well, some chocolate's better than others, but chocolate is chocolate, and it all tastes good. And yeah, well, yeah, but I'm getting fat. It's not. <laughs> I got to stop eating chocolate. Yeah. Gives me headaches. Yeah. Well, just because we decide we're going to stop eating chocolate, we all know with these habits, the impulse, the desire, the momentum doesn't cease. Yeah. So it helps to reflect on that. If we have the question, why can't I let go of believing in these uh, stories that I keep telling myself? Well, yeah, look at the momentum. Also, look at, it can help to look at how embodied our practice is. There's a real risk in the spiritual journey, particularly for those of us who've, in uh, 
at least in secular Western culture, who we love spending time up in our heads. Many of us have, uh, early on in life, <clears throat> we lose touch with our bodies. We're not getting the information that is potentially available to us. Our bodies can tell us a lot. But uh, given the kind of education most of us go through, we do, I'm sure all recognize, tend to become identified with our thinking. You know, we are as clever as we have good thoughts. We're as bad as we have stupid thoughts. But the body can teach us a lot. If our practice is not embodied... We're missing a lot of data. We're missing a lot of information. The uh, Maha Satipatthana Sutta, the great discourse on on cultivation of mindfulness, uh, uh, most of us would be familiar with. The first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of body. Mm-hmm. I was talking recently with a friend who was a cognitive scientist at a UK university, and he was... Um, in the course of our conversation, he was uh, telling me how there are these experiments that some of the people in his field of science perform where they look at why people keep making the same misjudgment over and over again. And one of the tests that they did showed up how uh, people are not necessarily in touch with what their body is telling them. Like, for instance, if somebody's about to repeat a misjudgment, mistake, the skin can be uh, discharging a small amount of moisture uh, on the skin. The the body feels it. But if we're not paying attention to the skin, if we don't feel our skin, if we're busy up in the attic playing with our computer and just thinking, 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 we don't even get there's this data screaming at us saying, this is not clever. (laughs) <laughs> this is not clever. It's coming through. It's there. The data is there, but we're not getting it, and we're not registering it. So, this also can be something really worth registering when the big question arises: Why can't I let go? I said, well, is our practice sufficiently embodied? Are we doing enough walking meditation? And sometimes this comes up in conversation with members of the, the community the, you know, during the winter retreat. And so I ask people. You know, are you doing walking meditation? Oh, it's too cold. Or, you know, don't want to get that. You know, my mind's not so nice when I'm doing walking meditation. It's much easier when I'm sitting. I get more peaceful. So, of course, the idea is that when I'm peaceful, I'm having a good meditation. Well, <clears throat> that's not what Ajahn Chah would be endorsing. In fact, he, he told us how he used to walk around the monastery and look to see how deep the walking meditation tracks were outside people's meditation huts. He, he took that as a, as a gauge for how much people were putting effort into Dhamma practice. Were they doing enough walking meditation? It may not be so refined, but actually we're more in our body when we're doing walking meditation. It's much easier when we're doing sitting meditation to split off from the body and go up and play with the computer in the attic. But if we do that, maybe we're missing out on a lot of the data. Maybe we're not getting all the information. Perhaps the vital bit of information that we need for letting go to happen. Ajahn Chah, in talking about the caliber of uh, his disciples, he say you can't judge the caliber or the quality of a, 
of a, uh, a monk by what they're like sitting on their meditation cushion or when they're sitting meditation. You want to know whether anybody's got it together or not. You want to look what they're like on a festival when there's lots of food around, lots of attractive sense objects. That's when you can tell whether somebody's really well established in their practice or not. So being embodied in our practice makes a difference. When it comes to letting go of the stories, letting go of believing in these undermining stories that we keep telling ourselves. Also, bearing in mind the entrenched wrong views that regrettably many of us were programmed with at an early stage of life. If you travel to other cultures and and you talk with people who, for instance, people who get brought up in Buddhist cultures. It, it always amazes me how normal these people seem compared to compared to me, yeah? <laughs> compared to many of us. And, you know, you, you've probably heard uh, you know, it's oft quoted, often quoted example of when you know, somebody was trying to explain to His Holiness the Dalai Lama of the problem with you know, self disparagement. A group of Westerners were asking the Dalai Lama to give some explanation, some help, some guidance on dealing with self-disparagement. And he didn't get self-disparagement. Or similarly, one of our our, uh, teachers in Thailand, Tanjukun Panyananda, somebody was trying to explain to him, if I remember correctly, the, the problem with guilt, feeling guilty. He couldn't get it. It took a long time to explain to these very... Uh, clear, compassionate beings, what self-disparagement was. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama apparently said, well, in our country when people are like that, we call them crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know whether Tanjo Gunpanyananda ever figured out what being obsessed with guilt was. You know, self-hatred is not something that people in those cultures suffer from. Now, they do have things like fear of ghosts and, and other problems that we don't have. They've got their own set of neuroses, so it's not that that they've got everything sorted, but to factor in that the particular brand of wrong view that we got programmed with, we got to sort it out. We need to pay attention to the teachings we receive at an early stage of life. Like if you were brought up with the view that you're damaged goods, you're born bad. From the time you're born, you're damaged goods and it's only going to be better once you die and you go to a better place now that's that might work for some people but for many people that's actually very disempowering it's very undermining or or teachings that contradict the law of karma that somehow we're not responsible for our intentional actions of body speech or mind that somebody else is going to take care of these things for us and that, that can be a very disempowering undermining a bit of programming and and if we had it in an early stage of life and we entertained it for many years it can be very difficult to dislodge so likewise if we're struggling with this question of why can't I let go of the sense of conviction I have with all these stories I'm telling myself well there there are reasons for it 
so paying attention to these uh, can help us uh, develop the skills that we need. You know, when we identify the issue, when we identify what's causing the suffering, well, then we can pay attention to uh, the kind of skills that we need to develop, the kind of potentials we need to cultivate. And all of us have spiritual potentials. If we didn't, we wouldn't be fully human. We all have spiritual potentials, like uh, of the what the Buddha referred to as the five spiritual faculties, uh, uh, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. Yeah. The first faculty there, you know, faith, sadha. You know, it's a potential that human beings have. And it's profoundly sustaining. And when we're faced with the the big I don't know, like and as we embrace the spiritual disciplines and letting go starts to happen and the sense of who I am and what I'm all about and what the world is and and what matters anyway starts to disintegrate <laughs> and and some of these stories we've been telling ourselves start to fall away, we can feel extremely uncertain. We don't you know, know as much as we thought we did. And as we start to enter the territory of I don't know, what sustains us? Well, it's not information about reality because that's a false level of security. No. In the beginning, it's not insight. It's not direct understanding. What sustains us? Well, the Buddha called it faith. This heart capacity to tolerate uncertainty and stay open, mm. to not close our hearts down and to not become cold-hearted. Mm. There is that tendency when, when doubt assails us, when fear assails us, mm. our heart can become icy cold and rigid. Mm. And then intelligence, discernment, Trust, confidence, the potential for cultivating inquiry is compromised. So how to keep the heart open? How to keep the heart warm? Faith is tremendously important. What is faith? Well, faith is one of those mysterious things that, you know, when I try to explain to people what faith is, I, I often refer to the experience of of floating on water uh, I, mean, I, I, I discovered at some stage in my my life that you know it's very easy when you breathe correctly that especially in the ocean and especially in salt water it's very easy to float and I, when I had access to water that you could swim in which was quite a while ago I used to swim for very long distances you know I used to enjoy swimming very long distances, uh, very long distances. And, and just when I'd get tired, I'd just roll up my back and just lie there and just float, breathe and recuperate and then turn over and keep swimming again. And yeah, But if we don't know how to float, we can't do that. How do you float? How do you do that? Well, certainly thinking doesn't show us how to float. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you've had the experience of floating in water then you know it's a disposition, something to do with 
relaxation, something to do with trusting, something to do with the feeling that we're going to be supported if we let go, we're going to be held. So becoming familiar with that, we have that as a potential. But by thinking about it, we're not going to get it. We have to dare to experiment with trusting. We don't even necessarily know what we're trusting in. But somehow our heart's been inspired with the possibility that there is a real reality. There is actuality. It's not all just stories. It's not all just chaos. Sometimes we look at the world, it looks all chaos. It all looks arbitrary. But something within our hearts has been quickened whereby we trust. We have faith, or in Pali language, sadha, that there is something that's worth trusting in that's going to support us. So cultivating that. That's an important skill that sustains us. Patience. Patience, likewise. How do we cultivate patience? How do we cultivate patience? Hajj Vajira and I were having a conversation about this a day or so ago. How do we cultivate patience? And Hajj Vajira pointed out that you can't be patient for five minutes. You can only be patient now. That's very helpful, actually. So long as we're still projecting our minds out into the future, it's really painful. I think, I've got to tolerate this tedious company that I have to keep <laughs> for another five minutes or, or this aeroplane journey or this recovering from a cold. You know, like you've got a cold and, you, you know, it's probably not terminal it's probably just a cold but it can be so uncomfortable and it's not going to disappear in the next hour or so or maybe the next 24 hours we need to be patient if we're not patient we're just making it worse what is this patience? well it's kind of like faith you can't just get it by thinking we have to be willing to somehow surrender somehow commit somehow let go of our fantasies and be with what is it's a choice but again, we can, you know, like choosing to let go and trust that we're not going to sink as we float in the water. And we discover that we can do it. We can have faith. You know, likewise with patience, we, if we dare to choose to not follow our resentment and resistance to this tedious reality that we have right now, you know, Actually, I can be patient. There's a very rewarding sense of strength comes from that. You know, not having to make a problem out of this. We're not, of course, we're not talking about bitter endurance here. We're talking about patient endurance. You know, the, this potential that we have, just like the potential for, for having faith when we're faced with the unknowing, you know, that heart space that we can turn to that can accommodate uncertainty. Likewise, the capacity that we have, the potential we have for tolerating the intolerable. On the spiritual journey, sooner or later, it's guaranteed that we will find something that feels intolerable, unendurable. How do we endure it? Well, the word we have is patience, patient endurance. Modesty. Another really important, these are 
what I sometimes refer to as the soft powers, you know, the dramatic powers, the hard powers, like achieving and striving and and overcoming and conquering. You know, these are more impressive and more attractive, perhaps, but sometimes the soft powers are the skills, are the potentials that we need to be paying attention to. They make a big difference, you know, like faith, you know, like patience, like... Uh, modesty Uh, modesty Uh, you compare it to ambition modesty doesn't seem that attractive but yet the Buddha praised it the Buddha said that which accords with modesty you can consider as my teaching Uh, that great discourse to Mahapajapati a very famous nun a very famous bhikkhuni she was asking for a summary of the teaching and one of the points the Buddha mentioned was modesty yeah. as opposed to ambition, blind, heedless ambition. Yeah. Yeah. We might mistake ambition for uh, the word in party dhammachanda or interest in reality. Yeah. But also ambition can just be greedy discontentment. Yeah. I don't want to really investigate this experience, the storyteller. I don't really want to get to know the storyteller that's conjuring up all these fables and convincing me. I want to just follow another fantasy, read another novel, get another more interesting story going about the new improved version of me. And we can get very enthusiastic and ambitious about that, but sometimes actually what's called for is modesty. This, you know, what is modesty again? Well, trying to get modesty by thinking about it, you know, we can consider it, but what's called for is a, a feeling consideration. What is, what is the opposite of modesty, this blind ambition? What does that feel like? Well, it's kind of hot and restless. Modesty is kind of contentment, quiet, conducive with clarity, actually. Said, but what if I let go of my great striving to attain enlightenment? Maybe I'm never going to get anywhere. You know, sounds like another story to me. A, sounds like another fable. So we're not just trying to convince ourselves of a counter story, but we're experimenting with not listening to the storyteller and coming back to the feeling of actually this ambition, this arrogance, this demanding sense of entitlement that I have, that I'm supposed to become wise and enlightened just because I want to. A bit crazy, really. I mean, the idea that we're all entitled to get what we want to, no way, absolutely no way. If we stop and listen to that story, there's no way we're going to be convinced by it. We don't all want the same thing. I want Hanum power porridge and dried fruit for breakfast. Somebody else wants salty miso soup with onions floating around on it. What are we going to do? We can't all get what we want. I want to paint the Dummer Hall white. Somebody else wants to paint it all blue. What are we going to do? We can't all get what we want. Our desires are conditioned. It's not possible. And yet we do. We have these uninspected, unreasonable desires that trip us up all the time and we think we're entitled to gratify them 
well, with modesty, maybe we find we can start to question some of these unreasonable expectations. You know, like, you know, this person I have to sit next to every day, why, why do they behave like that all the time? I'm getting all indignant and upset about it and hot under the collar and maybe start talking in snide, insulting ways that not to their face, them behind their back. Not nice. Why, why do we do that? Yeah, well, we have unreasonable expectations or demands. I'm entitled to have that person be how I think they should be. Really? Well, if we were, according to reality, entitled to have that person be how we want them to be, they would be that way. The reality is they are this way. So the sense of entitlement that that, uh, comes with a lot of the storytelling that we entertain, if we slow down and for instance, appreciate the function of modesty and contentment in our effort and practice, not get intoxicated by greedy ambition and work with what we've got, we discover a really valuable skill. The frustration of not being able to let go of our habits, let go of believing in the stories, that frustration becomes more manageable if we cultivate these, what I'm referring to as the, the soft powers, these skills. But if we don't cultivate them, well, we, we just end up feeling continually frustrated. Compassion is another one. Yeah, compassion is a... Say, well, yeah, I want wisdom. I want insight. I want profound insight into reality. It can appear more convincing than compassion. Yeah. Or maybe we like compassion, maybe we like the idea of compassion, but if we're honest, how much of it do we have? Yeah, when we're with somebody who's suffering, do we have the do we have what it takes to be with somebody in an open hearted, warm hearted, sensitive way when they're suffering? Or do we have to fix them? Somebody comes with and talks to us, shares with us their struggle, their sadness, their sorrow. And really, often, really, what people are longing for is just to be received, just to be heard, just to be okay in their suffering. Because often we know that it's not going to pass immediately. We know that it's not going to disappear and we know that nobody else can take it away from us. Yeah, but it does make a difference when somebody else sees us and hears us in our suffering. And so if somebody trusts us enough to open up and share their suffering with us, do we have what it takes to be able to be there for them? Or do we want to come out with an explanation? That's very tempting, to try and explain their suffering away because we can't stand it just like we can't stand our own suffering. One of the biggest stories that we keep telling ourselves is that life is not suffering. And, of course, as disciples of the Buddha, we all know that the very core of the Buddha's teaching, the Four Noble Truths, the very first one being that there is suffering. And so... 
if we have the recognition of the the need to develop these skills, like, for instance, faith, like patience, you know, like modesty, like compassion. If we recognize and we commit and we put effort into cultivating these dhammas, then maybe we discover that there's an increased willingness to be simply honest with ourselves. That's a story that I'm telling myself. We start to hear stories as stories. Okay, we're not at the level the Buddha's at and saying, house builder, I've seen you, no more houses will you build, or storyteller, I've seen you, no more stories will you tell. You know, we're not at that level, but we may be going in that direction. And that's helpful. That can make a big difference. That can make a huge difference when we start to see stories as stories. That teaching in the Dhammapada, mistaking the false for the real and the real for the false, we live a life of falsity. But seeing the false as the false and the real as the real, we attain to the perfectly real. Yeah. The Buddha wants us to see the false as the false, to see stories as stories. But how do we get that honest? How do we get that perceptive? Mm. Well, yeah. Recognizing there is a momentum behind our storytelling, our believing in these stories. Recognizing how important it is to be embodied in our practice, not just up in our heads. Recognizing we have to deal with entrenched wrong view, wrong thinking. Cultivating those virtues, those soft powers that really make a difference. Like being patient and being compassionate, being modest, trusting. And not be caught up in looking for results. As Ajahn Chah was saying, if you've done the work, you don't have to be worried about the results. Being able to admit that life hurts is a real gift. Yeah. Talking with somebody just recently, I remember I talk that I heard Ajahn Chah giving one night on the the moon night and the, the in the big Dhamma hall at Wat Pong and there's a huge crowd of people there as usual, all the monks and the nuns and the the lay people. And Ajahn Chah started his talk by saying, he "said Don't be embarrassed or afraid if you're suffering. Everybody suffers." Yeah. Said, oh, what a relief! Yeah, I thought it was just me, busy telling myself that I'm not suffering. This is one of the most chronic stories that we're telling ourselves pretty much the whole time. If we really start to get honest, you know, we're basically unhappy most of the time. Even when we're sort of happy, that happiness has got a kind of a tinge of suffering to it because we know it's going to pass. That's not real happiness. That's not sustainable well-being. It's like sugar that tastes good until it doesn't taste good yeah. Yeah, passing moods that we experience that are agreeable even those are not thoroughly agreeable now this is not being pessimistic when we stop telling ourselves stories you know, we start to see the truth of the fact is that actually we're fundamentally unhappy and we can do something about it mm. being honest about it is 
one of the first things we can do. It really makes a difference. So instead of avoiding our suffering, we welcome it. You know, like in the morning chanting we do, Api yehi sampa yogo dukkha, pi yehi weepa yogo dukkha, yampi changnala panti tampi dukkha, three types of dukkha, three types of suffering. Mm. Association with the disagreeable, api yehi sampa yogo dukkha. Yeah. Some things are disagreeable, like the body can be really disagreeable. The weather's too cold, or it's too hot, or well, the place doesn't smell good. <laughs> There's always something irritating going on. How much energy do we put into avoiding that? Well, it's the collective conspiracy to avoid suffering that means that we don't have wisdom. You know, we're so addicted to trying to become happy that we don't see the real cause for our unhappiness, which is what, of course, the Four Noble Truths is about. Mm-hmm. Stop telling ourselves stories dispel the collective conspiracy to avoid reality, to turn the light of awareness around and look at reality. It's like this. This feels disagreeable. Oh, actually, that's more peaceful. When I stop telling myself stories about how agreeable this is when it's not agreeable, it's peaceful. So the different forms of disappointment we have, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, losing the good experiences. When summer turns into autumn and then into winter, or loss of a loved one. All the various subtle or not so subtle experiences of disappointment, despair, frustration, limitations, these are not indicators of our weakness but rather the messages that we need to train our attention to listen to to feel so instead of turning to the stories and believing in them and hoping that somehow a really interesting story is going to convince us about reality let's commit to the work of giving up the storytelling and paying attention to what's happening right here and now So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.